Well, right now, if you want to open your Bibles, we're going to continue through our study in the Gospel of John. We've been working our way verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the Gospel of John. And this morning, we find ourselves in John chapter 7, verses 25 through 36. It's interesting, when you go to the Bible, some chunks of the Bible uh, might deal with a day or even a week in a single sentence. And then other times, the progress of the biblical account slows to a snail space and we might spend chapters on one day (laughs) or in one week. And chapter 7 is that kind of a chapter where things have slowed down considerably and now in chapter 7 we are spending a span of time, a long span of verses, really in one exchange. During what was called the Festival of Booths or Tabernacles in Jerusalem, they had many of these feast days in the Jewish calendar, and this is one of the most popular, the most well-attended, and really um, that was an uh, agrarian society, a lot of farmers, people lived off the livelihood of raising things on the land, so in that respect, it's a lot like a rustic county maybe, and what the Festival of Booths was, was it was a celebration of two things. It was a a, a time to commemorate when they were living in tents wandering in the desert. And so they had this fun tradition as a people where they would for the week as a family build these kind of shelters outdoors and they would live in that for the week, which I've always said, and I said a couple weeks ago, sounds just like a lot of fun to me. I could see my kids really getting into that. But it was also kind of like their Thanksgiving. It was a celebration of the end of harvest. The, the, The fruit of the land had been gathered in And that part of the work was over. And we can all understand, living here in Aroostook County, some of what that might feel like. The harvesters have been put away. They're stored up. All the potato houses are full. And now we're going to have a party. And that's essentially what the Festival of Booths was to them. So it was celebrated in the fall time, uh, late September, early October, every year. And so that's what's going on. And during that time, every man from the whole country was required to come to Jerusalem for at least one day of the festival. So the place is absolutely packed. Jerusalem is just thronging with people, not only the people who normally live there, but all these pilgrims who have come to observe the festival. And here's what we want to do this morning. First, we want to walk through this passage, which is a continuation of the exchange we've been studying now for a couple of Sundays. Jesus has gone up to Jerusalem, and he stands up in the temple, and he begins to teach in front of this absolutely packed crowd. And we want to walk through this passage, John 7, 25 through 36. We're going to read it together, stopping as we go to try and understand what it meant in its original context, to its original audience. And after we're done doing that, we'll ask the question, what do these verses mean for us as Jesus followers living in Aroostook County, northern Maine, 2020? So let's dive in. John 7, beginning at verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem, therefore, said, is not this man, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? They're speaking of Jesus. Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? We'll stop here for a second. We're going to be working our way through, and I'm going to stop. Allow me to do this. I know it kind of breaks up the flow. 
I hope we don't lose the flow of what God is saying in his word with all these breaks. But I just want to stop and point out some things, and then at the end, we'll ask that question, what does it mean for us? The first thing that came up to me as I was studying this text this morning was I was confused. Because remember back in verse 20, Jesus said, uh, from, he's standing up in front of the crowd, and he makes the claim that they're trying to kill him. Do you remember the crowd's response? They say, you have a demon. Who's trying to kill you? That's what they said. And we made the observation that in that culture at that time, you have a demon is sort of like us saying, what have you been smoking? Or you're crazy, right? We say that in our culture. In that culture at that time, they said, you have a demon. Your mind is all messed up. Then they said, who's trying to kill you? But now in this verse, it's the, they say, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? So are they aware that the authorities want to kill Jesus or are they ignorant of it? What's going on here? John, and this is a very small point, I don't mean to linger on it for long, but I just want us to um, study this with some precision. John says this at the very beginning, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said this. The people who lived in Jerusalem lived with the Jewish religious authority. They were more aware of them and their mindset towards Jesus, their plans towards Jesus. Uh, Because they lived in Jerusalem with those people as well, they had a, a better understanding of the Pharisees' heart and intentions towards Jesus than, to all, than did all the other festival goers. You might imagine if you didn't see the Pharisees but one day a year at the festival, you wouldn't know anything about how they think or feel towards Jesus. They don't have Facebook. They don't have social media. You didn't only know if you had some contact with them or people who knew them. And so John gives us a little bit of information here to hang this truth off. He says, some of the people of Jerusalem. In other words, these are not people from Galilee. These are not people from the outskirts who've come to the festival. These are the people who live there in Jerusalem. They're the ones who say, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? So once again, just to put this in context, this is playing out at the Temple Mount during the Feast of Booths. The place is packed with all different sorts of men from all over the country representing every conceivable rung on the Jewish socioeconomic ladder. You had the, the elites, the rich, powerful, well-educated, rubbing shoulders with the guy who just got out of the fields. Most of them have probably heard some things about Jesus, but for most of them, up until this moment, they had not yet laid eyes on him for themselves. They've heard, as everyone had at that time, of some of the amazing things he's been doing. They've heard about some of the claims he's been making. They've heard of his infamous encounters with the Jewish religious authority. And now they're excited for the opportunity to size this man up with their own two eyes. They're listening. They're watching. And I think that one of the most striking things about these verses, not just these two, but the entire passage that we'll be unpacking this morning, is the way that the people in it are reacting and taking their cues from one another. They're they're not only looking and listening to Jesus, but they're also watching with one eye the Pharisees' reaction. And then when there is no reaction, they're thrown into confusion around that. But with nearly every word, as we will see, Jesus will be intent on declaring that he is operating independently of them. He will make it plain that he is sovereignly independent of the actions and opinions of man. Sure, 
Jesus is going to take time to respond to the people. But it can't really be said that he's reacting to them. He is proactively driving the whole scene. However, as the common workaday people in the crowd take in the scene before them, they are perplexed by what they are seeing. They're not only watching and listening to Jesus, they're also simultaneously, as I said, gauging the reaction of the Pharisees. Remember, in our study from last week, we made the observation how the people in this crowd had been long habituated, since infancy, to regard the Pharisees and the other religious members of the Jewish religious authority as authoritative teachers and interpreters of the law. They viewed them in that culture and at that time as the supreme authorities when it came to God's word. And the common people were perplexed by what they are seeing because Jesus is talking and saying some very pointed and forceful things about his identity. Some wildly controversial things. And the Pharisees are not saying or doing anything. There is no move to refute Jesus or to rebuke him or silence him. People can sometimes interpret silence in funny ways. And despite the well-documented animosity that the Pharisees held for Jesus, even given their knowledge on the part of some that these men were trying to kill Jesus, the people begin to wonder if the Pharisees are now silent in the face of Jesus' teachings because they have come to accept his claims, that he's Christ after all. Why else would they just be silently standing by while he says those kinds of things in the temple? Well, of course, we know that this isn't true. They do not believe in Jesus. And I think we might ascribe other motives to their silence. It seems like every time Jesus and these men have a public dust-up, these men, the Pharisees, they come away with egg on their face. And I think it was probably a mixture of confusion and fear that they would come off looking silly in front of such a great crowd that kept them silent. However, I think even beyond those motives, which I think were certainly present and certainly powerful, there is the mysterious and invisible hand of God that is restraining them at this time. Later, we will see that even though they wanted to arrest Jesus, no one would lay a hand on him. Why not? Surely, that is not due purely to logistical hurdles but is simply owing again to that mysterious restraining hand of God. It was not yet time for him to be arrested, and so it didn't happen. Again, Jesus is operating independently of human opinions and actions. The Pharisees are silent perhaps because they fear the reactions of the crowd if they don't come off looking well. Maybe they would only be made to look silly by Jesus again, and it would only reinforce his opinion among the people. Maybe they're confused. Who knows? But Jesus is not doing anything because of the reaction of others. He's driving the scene. Now before we move on to the next verse, there's a a small point here I just want to point out. Although this is not a very clean comparison, I don't typically compare the Pharisees to faithful Christians in my mind, to the church. Their reaction to the Pharisees here is something I do think about and worry about quite a bit. 
It does make me wonder how the culture interprets the silence of the church on issues of our own day. I'm worried about um, children who don't often hear their parents speak about Jesus or the gospel or the Bible. These people interpreted the silence of Pharisees in ways that the Pharisees would have been very surprised by and wouldn't have invited. But I do think that we today are sometimes very silent about the issues of our own day. In our homes, do we speak up about who Jesus is? Do we often tell our, Jesus, our kids that we love Jesus, that he's the center of our lives, that we believe the Bible is truth? Uh, do we oftentimes stand up in the midst of relationships that we have? I'm not talking about Facebook. I think Facebook or social media is a very cheap place to put out an opinion. Um, it seems like that's pretty dime a dozen sort of activity in our culture today. But it's much harder in the midst of relationships that are important to us to speak up on issues like, say, abortion or sexuality and gender or race issues. How is our silence on these hot-button issues that we don't want to touch just because they're hot potato issues? Or even beyond that, what is the most controversial, the ugliest thing in our culture today? Well, it might just be the gospel. How often do we talk about Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life? Well, to introduce that into any relationship is going to be a heavy ugh. And perhaps, maybe not, maybe you might be surprised, but we fear that that's true, so we avoid it. There's lots of different issues that we might back off from touching, and because we back off, how is our silence being interpreted? I think it's something to think about in this moment. Uh, again, I'm not comparing the church to the Pharisees. I think that would be a very poor comparison. But I do think that this dynamic that we see playing out is something perhaps that's playing out in our culture today. When the church is silent, how is that silence interpreted? Uh, I've noticed many times that uh, in the wake of a tragedy or a crisis in the church, somebody is hurting. Um, when I call that person or go to that person, um, I will ask, you know, has anybody else reached out to you? And, and sometimes they have, sometimes they haven't. And they sometimes interpret that silence in the weirdest of ways. They might interpret silence in a moment of crisis as disapproval, as sort of a, um, you, you, people are probably just thinking, well, they probably want to be alone with their troubles right now. I don't want to barge uninvited into space where I'd, I'm not welcome. They probably just want to lick their wounds in private. And so we don't call them. We don't go to them. But then they tend to interpret our silence in the weirdest of ways. I, I just think that when um, Christians need to be braver in speaking, perhaps. Speak, braver in showing up. And so I just mention this as a very small point here in the course of this passage because it is interesting in that human dynamic where people do tend to interpret silence in the weirdest ways sometimes. Verse 27, we continue on. After uh, that exchange, it says, But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Now we have to stop right here. This is a verse you might just fly right by, but it's actually a very sad, tragic verse. Last week, we made the observation that the people whom Jesus was addressing in John 7 had very few of the spiritual advantages that we enjoy when it comes to God's Word today. Most of us own our own Bibles, and we're literate. We can read them. 
However, most people in Jesus' day could not read and write, and the cost of owning God's word for themselves in the days before the printing press was far beyond most people's ability to pay. Also, unlike them, we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to guide us into the word and help us grasp its meaning as we read. But these folks did not have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That would come for true believers later at Pentecost. Their guides into the Word were who? Who guided these people their whole lives into the Word of God? Well, it was the Jewish religious authority, the rabbis, the Pharisees. And these are the men whom Jesus described as blind guides to the blind. And here in this verse, we see what sad things come about when people who are not familiar with the content of God's word are taught error instead of truth. This conviction that they held with apparent bedrock certainty that when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from is found nowhere in the Bible. If you read this claim in John 7 and you think, well, I want to see where they got that idea, I defy you to find it. (laughs) Go back in the Bible. Look this up. It does not exist. This had become popular teaching in rabbinic circles at that time, and it is tied in only the loosest of ways, very poor interpretations to one verse in Malachi and another in Isaiah. But really and truly, if you go read those verses, there is no room to interpret that in the way that they are. This idea had become held as gospel, that the Messiah, when he comes, would just suddenly and dramatically appear in the temple and would be a complete dark horse, unknown to the people. This had become such popular teaching that they believed it. The Old Testament scriptures have a lot to say about Jesus. In fact, much of our New Testament is given over to demonstrations of how precisely Jesus fulfilled what the Old Testament said about the coming Messiah, Jesus. How he perfectly satisfied the prophecies, the Old Testament prophecies, how he perfectly satisfied the demands of the law. And in fact, Jesus himself would make this point in Matthew 5. He said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So it's sad that when people were considering whether or not Jesus might be the Christ, they were not able to hold him up to the word of God, which would have authenticated and corroborated his claims. Instead, They compared him against the false, unbiblical teaching of their blind guides. And on that basis, not on the word of God, they rejected him. And it really does raise the questions for us. How important is it to be students of the word of God? We make ourselves easy marks for catastrophic error when we are unfamiliar with the content of the Bible for ourselves. Uh, It's just an expectation among Christians that as you grow and mature in Christ's likeness, you will grow as a student of the word of God for yourselves. And these people had been spoon-fed error by a blind guide, and it resulted in them not recognizing Jesus for who he was when it showed up. We continue in verse 28. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from. 
But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Don't miss these words, him you do not know. Again, he is publicly questioning the legitimacy of the scribes and Pharisees as authoritative interpreters of the law. He's saying that they, the most religious, the most privileged, the most educated among them, the people who had access to and who possessed a nearly encyclopedic knowledge of the words of God, the Jewish scriptures, they did not know God, the one who inspired the words. It's one thing to know the Bible, it's another thing to know the author. And Jesus is here is saying to these men who know the Bible inside and out, you don't know God. And since you don't know him, you can't recognize me. Or perhaps because you don't recognize me, that is all the proof we need that you can't possibly know him. And this is a biblical truth that Jesus emphasized elsewhere. If you reject Jesus, you reject God. If you reject him as God's son, the Christ, you don't truly know God or honor God or love God or have God as your father. Jesus is the one. What you decide about him is what determines your relationship to the Father. Here are some examples. In John 5, 23, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Also in John 5, I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. In John 6, he said, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. In John 8, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. And then again in John 8, if God were your Father, you would love me. The plain teaching of this is obvious. If you will not have Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you cannot have God as your Father. Verse 30 gives us an explanation for why the Pharisees are not moving more aggressively against Jesus, even though they hate him. It says that even though they were seeking to arrest him, no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Again, they seem to be restrained by that invisible hand of God that still governs all that is happening around us today, according to his plan and his timing. Again, Jesus is operating with sovereign independence. Satan may be a vicious dog, but he is a dog on a leash at the end of it all. He cannot go beyond what God has ordained. He can't make even one move against Jesus until Jesus himself wills it in perfect yielded submission to the Father. You remember those words out of John 10 which Jesus spoke? I think when I was a kid growing up and I heard the story about Jesus being arrested and taken to the cross, I had this righteous (laughs) indignation that, and which in some respects is true, where I felt like Jesus was being unfairly treated by wicked men, like he is being taken advantage of. He was a victim somehow. And in John 10, Jesus refutes that kind of thinking. In John 10, 17 through 18, he says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. 
Jesus was not a good man who got taken advantage of, who got played. (laughs) None of that, of course, is true. He is a good man, but he's operating independently, sovereignly independent. His decision was to lay his life down of his own accord. It wasn't taken from him. And so when we talk about this issue of timing, they can't, Satan is a dog on a leash, and he still is today. We move on, verse 31. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. Again, they're reacting to one another. Do you see how this is happening? Jesus is operating independently of them, but the people and the Pharisees are feeding off of each other. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go, that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? Uh, These are perhaps um, the most heavy loaded verses in this passage of scripture i believe Uh, in the verses that came before this the question was raised where does this guy come from and now in these verses jesus pivots and begins talking about where he came about where he is going he intends to go somewhere and where that place is those who seek to arrest him and kill him would not be able to follow And of course, both the mysterious origins of Jesus and the mysteriously inaccessible destination that he's alluding to are in heaven with God the Father. Here, Jesus is referring to where he will go after his death and resurrection. And as we've seen many prior times so far in the Gospel of John, when Jesus speaks this way about spiritual realities, those who are listening with carnal minds tend to interpret what he says with kind of a Amelia Bedelia-esque absurdity. Like I'm thinking of Nicodemus. Remember him? Jesus says, you have to be born again. And he's like, well, how can I go back into my mother? And then when he talks about destroying the temple, and he says, I'll rebuild it in three days. They're like, well, it took super long to build the temple. That's not a realistic time estimate, Jesus. Remember the woman at the well where he says, I will give you water and you'll never be thirsty again. And she goes, oh man, I'd love to drink that water, thinking of physical water. Or the crowd after the feeding of the 5,000 where he says, I'm the bread of heaven and you eat me, you'll satisfy your souls forever. They go, oh yeah, give us this bread always. Here, this is another example. Jesus says, I'm going to go away and you won't be able to follow me. And they go, is he leaving the country? (laughs) Is he going to go to Greece? What's going on here? And again, it's a very Amelia Bedelia-esque, but this is the way that spiritual truth lands on the ears of people who have not been given the Spirit to hear and understand it. Uh, when, when you speak the truth of the Bible to people who do not have, not been given eyes to see it, it comes off sounding absurd. 
which I think is the hard thing for Christians to open their mouths and begin talking about the gospel. It sounds absurd. Spiritual realities oftentimes land on carnal ears in just that way, in just that way. Jesus says, I'll be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Those words are chilling. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am going, you cannot come. Those are heavy words from the one who is the, go- the door, the gate, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is saying to these men, and it's heartbreaking really, he who knows what's in a man, he knows their intentions to kill him, he knows their heart of opposition to him, he knows their unwillingness to embrace him as Lord and Savior, and he says now in front of the crowd and these men, he says, I'm, I'm not going to be here forever. The window is closing. This is similar, I think, to what Isaiah says in Isaiah 55. Beginning in verse 6, it says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. The, The Bible is replete with warnings throughout the Old and New Testament about the dangers of waiting too long. John MacArthur says this. He says, Hell is, after all, itself... Truth discovered too late. And so I think one of the most important things we can take, about, take away from this passage is this truth that the door is not always open. That the time to make a decision for Christ is today. And now we make the transition on that thought. I want to explore this a little bit further. We understand now what this exchange might have meant to the people in, its, in that day, at that time. And the first word of application has to be a word to non-Christians. This passage is teaching, maybe the most important teaching for you here if you're in, in listening to me this morning, and you are a non-Christian. This passage is teaching that the time to put your trust in the Lord for salvation is today. Jesus told the crowd that the time was coming when he would go where they could not follow and where even though they sought him, they would not find him. That they would be shut out of heaven forever. It is a costly thing to delay the moment when you bend the knee. If you have felt the tug of the Spirit on your heart, if you have come to believe the gospel truth that Jesus died for you in atoning sacrifice on the cross, you feel drawn to that truth. You feel drawn to embrace it personally, but you're afraid to do so because of the cost. And so you keep putting it off. I just want you to know that the door to the ark will not stand open forever. There is a warning here in verse 34. And so I feel, I feel like I need to inform you of that. These are the days when the door to the ark stands open, and any can go in and find safety there, but those days will draw to a close. The day of decision is now. Second, a word to the church. It seems to me that Jesus, at least in this exchange, and in those that we have studied so far through the Gospel of John, 
was controversial for two basic reasons. Their desire to arrest Jesus is mentioned twice in these verses. And again, they want to arrest him for two basic reasons. The first time arrest is mentioned is following something that Jesus says about them. He says, you don't know God. And then in the very next verse, it says, we got to arrest this guy. (laughs) He can't get away with that. And then the second time arrest is mentioned is after the crowd say, I think this could be the Christ. Which is, of course, the centerpiece of Jesus' teaching. And so they want to arrest him for the things he says about himself and the things he says about others. And we see both in this passage. His claim that they did not know God is, of course, a very controversial and offensive sort of thing to say to the crowd. Jesus said that they didn't know God. And this is not how they viewed and understood themselves. They were God's people, children of Abraham. They thought of themselves as existing uniquely among the peoples of the earth in relationship to God. But they had come to believe that based on some faulty assumptions about who God was and his word. Now, the thing that he says about those listening to him was offensive enough. But Jesus is also, and perhaps most controversial, for the things that he said about himself. And we remember again, verse 31, where it says, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? They believed in him. They believed in his claims. And the Pharisees again heard that muttering, and they sent officers to arrest him. And it's interesting that both the negative assertion that the Pharisees didn't know God and the positive assertion that Jesus is the Christ were followed immediately by plans to get him. They're seeking to arrest Jesus because of these twin motives. And this reminds me a little of 1 John 3.12, where it says, we should, be, we should not be like Cain, who is of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Cain killed his brother Abel because Abel's very life was an accusation. There's nothing to indicate in the Bible that Abel went out of his way to rub his goodness in Cain's face. But just by doing right, Cain was reminded of all his wrongdoings. Abel's very life was inadvertently an accusation. And so, rather than repenting and changing his conduct, Cain decided to kill the guy who continuously troubled his conscience with reminders of his wrongdoing. And here's the thing for us to notice as Jesus followers living today in 2020. In John 15, Jesus says, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. The thing that Jesus said to the crowds that was so offensive was that their rejection of him was proof that they didn't truly know God as they had presumed. 
In verses like 1 Peter 3.15, we're told to always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks us for the reason for the hope that is in us. But then it adds, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So the Bible calls followers to always be ready to give an answer, to be active in proclaiming the hope that we have, but to do that in a way that's respectful of others, to hold our convictions with gentleness, not in an obnoxious or harsh way, but certainly not in a silent way. But the Bible is also clear that the truth claims of Christianity are inherently competitive. And whereas Christianity can and should coexist peacefully alongside other religions in the streets of our towns, it cannot, cannot share the same space in a person's heart with other lesser gods. The truth claims of Christianity are again just inherently competitive. When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, there is no other way to the Father but through me. There is no other way. None. That is an offensive thing to say in the midst of our pluralistic society today. It's an offensive thing to say to someone who feels that they have a relationship to God through some other deity, some other faith tradition, or an imagined Jesus who is not true to the Bible of the Jesus of the true to the Jesus of the Bible or who believes that they are saved by virtue of their own goodness basically if anybody believes that they're right with God by any other means than the gospel truth that we're saved and made right with God by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone it is a very offensive thing to say there is no other way to the father So yes, preaching the gospel can be an offensive and unpopular thing to do in the midst of a culture like ours, given over to pluralism. I was listening to a Christian thought leader recently, and he was making the case that our society, as it has rejected Christian worldview as the dominant worldview in our culture, and has adopted humanism as the dominant worldview in our culture, Christianity, of course, is in contrast to humanism in a lot of areas, But perhaps most fundamentally, Christians, our pursuit of truth, we believe that truth can only be found external to ourselves. When a Christian looks for truth, they look to God in the Bible. When a humanist looks for truth, they look within. And so this has set up a a great conflict in the midst of our society between the waning Christian view, worldview, and the waxing humanist worldview. And the result is pretty intense. Um, in former generations, the highest ideal among Americans was the pursuit of truth. You could disagree about what was truth, but that was the ideal. That was the goal. You could sit down with somebody who did not believe in Christianity, and the dialogue that you would have with them was about the pursuit of truth. This is what I believe truth is. That's what I believe truth is. And you would disagree, maybe disagree passionately, but then you'd go on with your lives. Uh, But today, because truth is personally derived and personally held, a humanist, the pursuit of truth is the quest to become more authentically yourself. For the Christian, the pursuit of truth is to become more authentically like Jesus. And these two things are in conflict. 
constantly. And so because truth is personally held and personally derived, our society has replaced the pursuit of truth as the highest ideal and is now in pursuit of tolerance. This is the new word. And it's, over, it's contrary to classical understandings and definitions of tolerance. Tolerance formerly in our culture was, you don't believe in what I, don't, in what I believe, I won't murder you. <laughs> I, won't, I won't get you arrested. I won't persecute you for not seeing things the way I do. But now, because truth is personally derived and personally held, none of us, it's now very offensive in our culture to proclaim a truth that confronts somebody else's understanding of truth. This is one of the biggest social faux pas you can commit in America today, is to say, I think you're wrong about that. Even if you say it nicely, even if you say it lovingly, it comes off on the ears of many Americans today as a great offensive thing. And when I see Jesus standing up in the temple <laughs> and he's, not say, he's saying what people need to hear even though it is very much not what they want, I, I see a call to Christians, yes, to be gentle and respectful, but I'm afraid there are so many who are just saying, I'm not gonna touch that. That is just way too risky in a culture today that doesn't care about truth and just wants everybody to be vanilla, inoffensive, hold no strong opinions. Jesus was anything but vanilla. Jesus was controversial. And I think wherever he has lived and proclaimed genuinely, it will disturb the spirits of the neighborhood. And I think Jesus, I think Satan just grins at a church that decides to be bland and inoffensive. I'm not saying we should go out of our way to be offensive, certainly not. Please don't hear me say that. <laughs> I don't think we can become a Jesus church by courting controversy. But as we follow Jesus, and as we really do give voice to the convictions that are at the center of the gospel, it will, it will always, always result in the world treating us the way it treated our master. They wanted to arrest him. They wanted to kill him. They wanted to remove the thing that so troubled their conscience. And that same pressure is on us, Jesus followers today. Will we stand up? Will we be faithful in the midst of our generation to proclaim the truth of the gospel? Or will we retreat from that calling? One last word, and perhaps this is the greatest comfort we can derive from this passage. I've mentioned many times that Jesus was operating independently of the opinions and the actions of the crowd. What he says, he says because it's true, not because of how it will land on people's ears. And I think one of the things we can take away, which by the way is true for us, have you ever struggled with even just the way that we as Christians describe ourselves in relationship to the world? Have you ever thought about how offensive it might land on somebody's ears when we talk about non-Christians as the lost? Or we're saved, they're unsaved. We're right, meaning we're right with God. They're not right with God, they're wrong. These, are, these terms that we use are laden with controversy. How would you like to be described as lost? Like you're bewildered, like a little kid in the woods. You're lost. That's an offensive word. It's true 
to their condition spiritually. Believer versus non-believer, saved versus unsaved. These things are inherently laden with controversial feelings. But Jesus has not shoved off his feet. He gives what's needed. And the thing I want us to draw attention to is, again, this issue of timing. Jesus ultimately trusts in the timing and eventual reward of going to the Father. Jesus, at no point during his earthly ministry, made it his plan to get the accolades of people. Just didn't do it. He embraced the cross. He endured the cross because of the joy that was set before him, to borrow language out of Hebrews. He endured its shame. He went to the cross willingly for the joy that was set before him. And really, fellow church, Jesus said, if you are going to follow me, you've got to take up your cross and follow me. He's invited us to look at our earthly sojourn as a willing embrace of the cross with an eye towards a future reward. But when we say, I'm just gonna go, I'm just gonna ghost the world on topics of the gospel. I'm just gonna absolutely go radio silence on all this controversial stuff, on any issue touching on biblical truth, morality, and ultimately who Jesus is and why all of this matters and how a person can be made right with God. I'm not gonna touch any of that with a 10-foot pole because it's likely to result in things that are bad for me right now. We are failing to take up our cross and follow Jesus. We are instead saying, I'm foregoing future reward for a little comfort right here, right now. This is a mindset contrary to what the Bible has called us to be as Christians. In 1 Peter 5, 4, it says this, I oftentimes love to quote this verse at Christian funerals, and it says, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You see, it's not that Christianity is all about duty and sacrifice and taking the heat rounds of the culture and all of that. That's not really what animates and governs us. It is a belief, a great hope of a coming reward. We're motivated by a desire for good things. But Jesus, in the example that he set for us in enduring the cross and its shame for the joy that was set before him, has called us to live in such a way now that takes up our cross and follows Jesus in that example with the hope that someday when the chief shepherd appears, we will receive the unfading crown of glory. There will be a day where we trade the cross for a crown. But in these days, that's what our calling is. And we, true, we show ourselves true neighbors and true patriots, true citizens. We will love our country most when we love our God best. We will love our neighbor most when we love God best in front of him. And that's the calling. That's the challenge. Let's pray. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the way you confronted me in your word this week. God, you confronted me personally with those times when I have chosen silence over an opportunity to share the truth of the gospel just for fear, Lord, that it would not be well received. 
Father, I know you haven't called us to be obnoxious people. You have not called us to be loud and unwelcome. But God, you also have said that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Beautiful are the feet on the mountains of those who bring good news. God, I, thank, I, I ask your forgiveness for how ugly I've made my feet. I just haven't gone sometimes. But Father, I, I ask you, Lord, to give us a spirit of repentance over that. Help us to know, Lord, how to speak your truth in a way that's gentle and respectful. God, we know that we can't, by force or by passion or by speaking loudly, bring one person into the kingdom. That's your work. You are the one who does the mysterious heavy lifting. But the church is this strange mingling of your miraculous divine power and ordinary human faithfulness. God, in the speaking of your word, in the speaking of the truth by your church, you lend the power. But God, I pray that you would not find us silent in this critical hour in the history of the world. Father, I know for sure and certain that if we are silent at this time, you will raise up another church. You're not going to be defeated. But we would miss out on the opportunity to be a part of what you're doing and to be with you in the doing of it. God, stir us up with urgency to the hour. The world is desperate. Make us desperate also. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.